Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This episode is proudly brought to you from 99designs by Vista, a global creative platform that makes it easy for you to work with professional freelance designers from around the world. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking to Sanera Madani. Sanera Madani is the founder and CEO of Stacks, one of America's top 10 fastest growing fintech companies doing integrated payments and payment processing for small business, large business, and also SaaS companies. And today, we're going to dig deep on how she turned a rejection into fintech's newest unicorn, her experiences through multiple rounds of funding and what it takes to run a fast scaling business. This one is not to be missed. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Sanera Madani. So Sanera, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I guess the way that I found my job, when you say find your job, I don't think any CEO says they found their job. I uh, was in the payment card industry. So my background was in credit card processing. I was in the industry. I saw a problem. Long story short, I decided to go find a solution myself. And so I was in the industry when I got started, but I had no idea that I was going to go build a company on my own and then now have a giant fintech that we do today. So I, I happened to be in the industry that I was in. Yeah. And can you take us back to the early stages? Like, uh, you know, did you have much exposure to entrepreneurship in the beginning? You know what? I actually did. I have a really interesting story because I come from immigrant, an immigrant family. My parents immigrated here from Karachi, Pakistan. So I'm in the U.S. currently and my parents immigrated here when they were, you know, in their early teens, met in Chicago, got married. I was born in Chicago and grew up in Dallas. But what makes kind of my story and our family story really interesting is I've come from this line of entrepreneurs out of necessity. So because my parents were immigrants, entrepreneurship was something that it wasn't, it was a necessity. It wasn't something that was sexy or cool as it is today. They just weren't educated. So in order for them to have their American dream, they had to start a, start a business. So I came from a line of small businesses my parents literally had every small business you can think of. And so my brother and I actually went to 10 different schools in 12 years of our schooling where we moved around so much in this pursuit of my parents' American dream. And honestly, their American dream was just to make sure that my brother and I had an education and that we didn't have to become entrepreneurs, that we could have a steady job at a 401k. And then here we are now as entrepreneurs and so it's funny how that, that story kind of unfolded. But yes, I grew up around the most incredible, hardworking entrepreneurs uh, and kind of saw firsthand what it took to build a business, what it took for businesses to fail, the hardship, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. But all of that credit goes to my parents. Yeah, wow. What an amazing story. So um, you co-founded Stacks with your brother. Can, can you talk us about... Um, when you had that aha moment for Stacks? Yeah, so I started the company in 2014. And honestly, Nathan, I didn't even know that I could go build 
a million dollar business, let alone a billion dollar business. I came from the payment card industry. I was working, um, you know, selling terminals, which are like credit card processing machines out of the trunk of my Volkswagen Beetle. So I started like ground up. This is in field sales. It doesn't even exist anymore. And I, you know, I serve small businesses. And from that, I had this, I guess, aha moment in 2012 when I was stuck in a, in a so- snowstorm in Texas. And yes, Texas does have snowstorms. So I was stuck visiting my, my family and uh, I got, you know, I got stuck because of the weather and I was rerouting my then subscription boxes back in Orlando. And I was so obsessed with everything subscription and this was pre-subscription economy. Now it is today. So I was like rerouting, you know, my dog's bark box and birch box and whatever else, because I wanted to be home to make sure I received and opened this amazing package. And that's kind of when that aha moment happened, that light bulb went off. And I was like, holy shit, why isn't there a flat subscription and payments? This like has to exist. And that's kind of when I started digging into this subscription side of the credit card industry, which didn't exist. And that's kind of where the, or like the origin story of now stacks, then fat merchant, which was the original name of the company was started. And we were the first subscription based credit card processor to come to market that had flat fee, unlimited credit card processing, just like all of these amazing softwares like Spotify, Spotify, and Netflix. And quickly we were coined as the Netflix of credit card processing. And here we are, you know, almost 25 billion in payments later. Yeah, it's crazy. You you've had such an incredible success story. I wanna I wanna delve a little deeper though, because I know that you actually brought this idea to your then employer, correct? Correct. I had no desire. So as I mentioned to you earlier, so I grew up in a in a household of entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurship, I mean, we you know, my parents had small businesses. I had to work in small businesses every weekend after school. I mean, from you know, franchise, um, you know, fast food restaurants to pizza shops to, um, you know, even a marketing company. Like my parents literally had every single style business you can, you can think of real estate, all of it. And we worked in every single one of these small businesses as a family. So we all had our roles and responsibility and it wasn't this like child labor kind of work. It was just a family run business. And so because I, kind of had that background, I didn't even for one second think that I was going to go start this company. And it wasn't a small business, right? Where do you go find Mr. Visa, right? So I'm 25 years old. I'm working for a credit card company. I was like, I think this is going to be amazing. All I wanted to do was to bring this idea to life. And instead of going home on that trip back to Orlando, I ended up routing my ticket to Houston where my headquarters was for my, the company that I worked for. And I ended up securing the meeting with a C-suite. And I was like, I'm going to pitch this idea. I worked on this presentation for a week. I binge watched, I think, season one and two of Shark Tank. And so if any of the sharks I ever get to meet uh, soon, hopefully, you know, that is, that's a huge part of my story. Like I ended up, you know, watching like the first season of Shark Tank. And I'm like, okay, this is how I'm going to pitch this. This is how this is going to work. And all I wanted was to see this successful in my own company, and hopefully just have a part in that success of whatever that could look like and just like lead this division and change the way that the credit card industry was. I ended up going to Houston and the idea was just laughed out of a room and, um, you know, it wasn't taken seriously. I mean, why would we want to disrupt this industry that was done this way for so long? And, oh, we want to create technology and invest in analytics and drive data from transactions. Like, why would we want to do that? We could just charge everybody whatever we want. And so it, it was, it was shut down. Mm-hmm. So you had this idea, you just shut down. What happened next? So I, I was disappointed, right? I was not just disappointed. I was, I was frustrated. I was disappointed. I remember getting back on this flight home and I get home and by coincidence, it was, family dinner. It was Sunday night. And my brother actually happened to be home from San Francisco. He was working for another startup. Everyone's around the dinner table and I'm explaining what had took place. And this idea that I have for, you know, to, to revolutionize this industry. I'm like, we've, somebody's got to do this. And my family looks to me, Nathan, and they're like, 
why not you? And that was the first time that it even occurred to me, why not me, right? Why not go give this a shot? And the, my, my first response was, how am I going to go find Mr. Visa? Like that was literally, I think the first thing I said uh, to my family. And I was like, well, I don't know how to start a software company. I've never built technology before. I know marketing. I went to school for finance and marketing and, and, you know, my parents looked at me and they said, I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? Give yourself six months and give it a go. And so that was kind of how the story of, you know, my entrepreneurship journey began. I ended up quitting that job, moving into my parents' house, right? Investing the, the very little savings that I had, ended up taking a small round from friends and family and starting this venture. And in six months, we had done over 5 million in payments our first year. And so that was kind of the start of, of this company. And um, there's a lot that happened in the last 10 years in becoming a unicorn, but that's how I got started. But what did the first six months look like? Like that's, that's pretty impressive to process 5 million of payments. Like what the first version of the platform look like? How much did you raise from friends and family to get an MVP going? And even, you know, processing payments, that's kind of scary. Like this is company's money. Like you got to get that right. And in six months, that's actually pretty quick. So can you talk us through some of that? Yeah. So I would say the first thing that I did, which I encourage a lot of founders to do is to, you know, leverage and white label solutions that are already there to get an MVP off the ground. And I didn't know at the time that it was called an MVP that I was, you know, doing like, I didn't know like the terms white label. Like I didn't, I didn't know startup lingo or, you know, founder lingo, but I happened to do some of the things in a, in a way that I, that I, that I, I think I did it. Not I think I did it in the right way. And one of the first things that I did was if I had six months, I, I did raise, and it was very little. It was like sub $50,000 of startup capital that I had taken from my now husband so uh, and my brother. So my brother ended up um, investing his, his savings as well. And um, it, was, it was about a $50,000 check. And it was because honestly, immediately that we put the money in the account in order for us to register with Visa MasterCard and go through some of the compliances, like that was half of the money, like immediately gone. So I had no startup capital. And so it's actually, by not having capital, it actually forced me to think, how am I gonna do this differently in comparison to the industry? So the way that, and this is not that long ago, so 2014, so 2013 is when this idea came to place and 2014 is when I got the company registered and like kind of our first clients going. But in 2014, it's not that long ago in payments. It's about a decade ago. However, most of the industry at that time was going to market by um, the FI channels so the banking channels. You got your, your processing through your, you know, through Chase or through Bank of America or through like your physical locations of banks. And I had just, I mean, you know, I love digital marketing and that was my background in school. I did finance and I did marketing and I, uh, and I was also one of the agents that was like the feet on the street. I could not afford to hire people. And so how could I make my dollars go further where I built a website? And then I started doing blogs and SEO and I invested, you know, the first $500 in Google and PPC and I, you know, the phone rang. And what was really cool about that model is that you could have share of space so quickly online when there wasn't, there weren't processing companies, there weren't fintechs. Fintech didn't even, like the, the word fintech didn't even exist. They weren't, they didn't have a space in the digital space yet. So we were able to get such quick share of space digitally and be a lot larger than having, like we didn't have branches. We didn't have, uh, you know, a partnerships with, with, the, with institutions or feet on the street or lots of employees that can go, you know, sell our solutions. And so we took, it was almost because of the scrappiness that we were able to, uh, you know, become, be one of the first players to come to market to really own the digital space um, in acquisition and customer acquisition online for payments. So that's kind of how we were able to make our dollars go further. And we would invest a dollar and we would get $10 back. Like we would, you know, our phones would be ringing for customers with this model. And um, another thing that I did was um, 
to go white label, as I had mentioned earlier. So we, I didn't have a technology background. I didn't know where to go build a software, but I, but I knew enough of what we needed. So we partnered with, um, with, with one of the banking institutions to use one of their, their white label solutions to go bring this to market, to at least go test out the hypothesis that people would want to have a subscription style model versus a percentage style model. So I would say the first about 250 customers that year came through that until we knew, okay, we need to go invest further. And we had enough proof of concept to then go raise capital to go build out software. Crazy. That's a great story because I think oftentimes founders, when they raise money, they want to build custom. You know, they've got a short development timeline. They don't have proof of concept. I really respect uh, the creativity and and that lesson around this idea when you don't have that much money, you've, you've got to be forced to be creative. Um, like, you know, even for us with Founder and, on, and our online education platform, you know, we just use WordPress and we just use a few different plugins, right? And we, you know, we have a substantial platform with a lot of users and it's it can work. Absolutely. I think it's so, I, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, especially in the early stages, I've seen so many companies not get started or, or not get, you know, not be able to actually iterate with their customers. And so I think that was the biggest um, benefit in not owning this, like not investing so many dollars in building out the platform. We were able to build our platform with our customers and honestly, the platform as it is today would not have happened if we hadn't gone to that route because what we learned very quickly when we went online is that we were also attracting a different style of customer. Our customers weren't the uh, restaurants or retailers or what you think of for you know customers. People really recognize Square as like a processor in America. But they were there were technology solutions like Square and Stripe that were emerging in the marketplace. But there wasn't anybody that was able to do what we what we saw the need was for specific verticals. So we were attracting customers in the healthcare space. We were attracting customers in the professional services space and the services industries that needed both card present solutions. So they had in-person payments and online payments. So our, our next thesis was formed that there needed to be an omni-channel platform, that there needed to be one hub in payments and that it wasn't just about the transparency and billing it was also about that customers were going to pay in a multitude of ways and that businesses needed to accept payments through all of the different channels that, that uh, were going to become omni-channel. And so we took a bet on that thesis and built our technology to be a, a payments hub, right? So whether a customer needed e-commerce, whether they needed to integrate into QuickBooks or they needed an online shopping cart, an in-person terminal or mobile, we then knew that we, could, we didn't have to have the solutions at that time we were just integrating with the world leading software to build into a singular hub until eventually now we have our own proprietary uh, tools and solutions. But initially that was the platform itself was built upon that thesis. And that was the, the thesis that brought us to where we are today. So when you were scaling, can you talk us through the challenges that you faced over this past 10 year period and, you know, the increasing demands of the business. How, how'd you keep up? Uh, wine? I don't know. No sleep. I don't, I don't even know how work. we're still standing today as like, we're 10 years into this business. And I think now people are, you know, learning about the company and, and know who we are. And it's like, people forget like the, the it took 10 years to get to where we are today. And it was a lot of true blood, sweat and tears. And a million moments that I could tell you that I didn't know I could go build a million dollar business, let alone a billion dollar business. And a lot of it was grit and hustle and hard work and resiliency and just being able to fight through all of the no's and all of the rejection and just making it one day at a time. So I would say that, you know, the last 10 years, if I were to sum it up, just, it was, uh, it was hard work. Like that is how I would sum up the last 10 years of building this business, but I wouldn't trade it for anything else, you know, in the world. I mean, um, it has been, it's, it's been the, the journey has been just if, 
as hard as it's been, it's also been the most rewarding thing that I've also been able to do. And it continues to surprise me. It's like this, uh, uh, never ending, like growth that comes from reaching this next milestone. And it's not about the chase because in the initial, in the initial days, when I started the company, it was about the chase, right? It was like, what's the milestone and this next milestone. And I think as you start to grow a company, you know, there's like the team milestones, there's the revenue milestones, there's the funding milestones, there's all these milestones. And everybody tells you what is success, right? So success is defined by what you know success to be. And so initially that, that is how kind of my first like initial part of the journey, if I were, look, were to look back of what I, what I was chasing. And now I would say there was like a shift in the last three years in after you start achieving some of these milestones, it actually stops becoming about those milestones. It's really about, it's the, it's the, it, you realize that it's really about the journey and it sounds as, as cliche as it does. I mean, people still ask why I'm still, I'm still here, right? We've had, you know, I've gone through multiple different rounds of private equity, been able to um, have a lot of success for myself, for my team, for our investors and everything else. And it's like, I just love the journey that I'm on. And every day I get to show up for something different for a job that was harder than the one I had yesterday. And who gets an opportunity to build something at this level and then continue to go. And so I'm still, I think like, that's the, that's the, it's the journey that I'm, I'm here for. And I, I've realized that it's not about the milestone anymore. Like, especially after this last like unicorn uh, announce like announcement in, in March. And I'm sure we're going to get to that. It's, I mean, what next, right? People are like, what's next? And I'm like, there's nothing next to chase. Like, I, I don't think it's about what's next. It's about, you know, what's possible. Like what, what's, it's not about what's next. It's about, it's about how do I take this platform and uh, show other women, honestly, that they too can do it too. And you also had a buyout offer for 17 and a half million in 2017. Um, what made you decline that? So something about um, something about me that I, I feel like is one of my, now I realize is one of my biggest strengths. I used to think of it as one of my weaknesses. I'm very empathetic. You know, I'm a mother, I'm a woman. I feel like I lean on my my three minds is what I call it. So I've got my, you know, like my, my analytical mind, I've got my heart and I've got my gut and you kind of need, I make, I need all three to make the decisions. And when one's not feeling right, I have to, to, to trust that. And it took me a long time to, to trust myself in that decision-making in 2017, you're referencing a time where we had just raised our series a funding. So we had our seed funding. We had gotten a pre-seed and then our seed round. Um, I think our, our value there was, I think it was $7 million. And we had, you know, we, we were heavily discounted. I mean, we were out of Orlando. There's no venture. There was no venture capital in, in Orlando. I mean, less than 1% of minorities raise capital, less than 3% of women ever raise capital. And so, and this is, we're, you know, this is 2000, no, I said 2017. Yeah, 2000, 2000, 2015, I would say, a year and a half after. And we ended up uh, doing our seed round. And then quickly thereafter, you know, we got some traction and a, a strategic payments company reached out and said, hey, you guys are have this great technology. We'd love to talk about an acquisition opportunity. And so, of course, like any, I get so excited. It's like the first time, like, I'm like, oh my God, like somebody wants us. Like, this is so exciting. I feel so validated, right? You feel so good. And I get a term sheet. I'll never forget the day that I got the term sheet uh, because it was also St. Patrick's Day. And then we went out that day, like our office was like in, in, like in the heart of downtown and we like celebrated as a team. It was like this whole thing, like we have an actual term sheet in our hands that says $17 million. And I'm doing all the like back of the napkin math. And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm getting about to be a millionaire if I accept this offer. So you, you go through all of these things. Like it's a very exciting time for a founder. The first time you ever receive anything tangible in paper. And I get excited. And we had just finished off of 
this, like we had just brought in on investors. We have our like only a, one or two board meetings that we had had. And so the next morning I, you know, make sure I let our investors know we call a board meeting. They're like, oh, we should pursue this opportunity with a strategic. And we go down the path and long story short, my gut was not clicking. The people on the other side, they just, it just wasn't the right fit uh, value wise, culture wise. No one's like, I have to roll. It wasn't this like, you know, and then also you don't know what you don't know, right? It's not, it's not actually $17 million in cash also for the company. You have equity, you have stock, you know, the investors get paid and you as a founder, honestly, you're always the last person to get paid. Like that is, that is like the first thing that I feel like I want to teach every entrepreneur is I did not uh, know enough in the early stages on, on, you know, I didn't have a lot of resources on how to negotiate term sheets and all of that. But long story short, it, it didn't feel right. And we go through diligence and every step of, of our diligence process, like red flags, red flags, and our board kept pushing us to keep going through this process. And until the kind of like the, the last, you know, last phases of diligence, they, um, they retraded the offer at 12 and a half million. And their, the reasons why they retraded it were, you know, it was almost like they knew they had us and, and it was because I was negotiating against myself. It was probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned in capital raising was that you don't ever, if you're negotiating with one party, you're negotiating with yourself. And so you want to have multiple parties at the table, which has been one of the biggest lessons that I've learned in my life. So they, they give us, they give us a retraded term sheet and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to fucking accept this. And so I decline the offer and I say, thanks, but no thanks. And we're out. And so I call the board meeting the next morning and I tell the board that I have declined the offer and they all, we all meet in our, our, our office, uh, in Orlando. This is pre, uh, pre pandemic. And it was a shit show of a board meeting. They thought we were, you know, Sal and I were immature and that we should not have like, you know, we should have consulted and that if 12 million could have been a fair offer or we could have countered back. And I'm like, you guys just invested in this business, right? What has changed in the last six weeks? that you're ready to take this minimal offer, like just incrementally more than what you've invested in. And so we started this relationship extremely rocky with our board, but we declined the offer that we had on the table and we continued to, to power through. And there was a point in the company where we had absolutely no money left in the bank and needed to go out for our next fundraise and ended up getting that next fundraise term sheet for 50 million there shortly right after. And then the following rounds, I'm like skipping of like the, the year after or the two years after ended up doing a private equity deal. And they ended up buying out our, that first initial investors that wanted us to sell for the 12 million. We exited those investors at 18 times their capital. So and then, of course, now the 250, that, that initial, that even the last round has then now quadrupled. And the business that, you know, I think it was at like, I don't know, a million in revenue at the time is now over 100 million in revenue. We're doing about 120 million in revenue today in ARR um, and growing at, you know, double digits, uh, you know, triple digits year over year. And so, yeah, it was a, it was the right decision. Hey Founder Fam, I want to take a quick break from the conversation to talk about a pain point for a lot of you out there, and that's finding quality design help to build your brand. Whether it's a logo, website, or packaging, you can spend hours trying to do it yourself and still end up with nothing. That's where 99designs by Vista comes in. With its contest model, you can invite an entire global creative community to participate in your project and submit ideas. It's like having an entire design department at your fingertips. And at Founder, we've worked with 99designs before in the past to create a special issue of our magazine. And it really transformed the quality of the project by having a bunch of concepts to choose from and being able to collaborate with creators from all over the world. From pitch to perfection, 99designs will be there with you every step of the way. They'll help you transform your idea in your head into a valuable piece of content or branding for your business. And together with 99designs, we're offering you a $30 discount on your first design contest. So just head to 99designs.com forward slash founder to learn more or get started on your project today. Okay, now let's jump back into the episode. 
You talk about lessons around fundraising. I'd love to tap into that a little more. Can you share with us some of the levers that you've used now after that 2017 lesson um, to really raise? How much have you raised now? Over $500 million in capital. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of money. So yeah, can you can you share with it's us some lot. of these? Levers? And all of it is not all of it is not capital for the business. We've done recaps along the way since then we've bought out investors. So the total amounts, like our last round was we did a two hundred forty five million dollar round for the company, um, but there was some changes of of ownership alongside through the years. Yeah. So talk us through like some of the levers that uh, that you've used to, and and you know lessons and experiences you could share with our our audience. Yeah, I would say like the biggest lesson is to have the right advisory team around you, right? And so I think you don't know what you don't know. And I think as a first-time founder, I mean, I always say I didn't go to CEO school. So I didn't know, that, you know, uh, until I, everything I've learned has had to have, like has been through experience. It's not from a, um, you know, it's not from a school I went to and it's not from, you know, a best friend's experience. It has, it's gone through the experience of our own company growth and experience that we've had to go through. And so I will say that the levers that have really helped me is one, having the right advisory team around you and getting the right mentors in place early on. And even some of these things, like it sounds so basic and so cliche, but really having mentors that have actually been there in your journey. And I had a mentor that was so instrumental in our success. His name is Asif Ramji. He sold his company, um, a payments company for, you know, $550 million to um, a strategic. And he was also in this, a similar industry we had met and he had, you know, really taken Sal and I kind of under his wings as his mentees. And anytime that I needed any resources, I had a a, a true mentor that I can call on. And he had been there in the path right before we had. So I think it's important to have a good advisory team around you, but also an advisory team that's in your, ideally in your industry and that some, and someone who hasn't been so far removed from the business. So, you know, I was part of like a venture accelerator. I met great advisors and investors, but they had built companies decades ago, right? So building a company today and having mentors and advisors who are in the trenches of what's happening in, in you know, when there's a Facebook algorithm change in, in 2021 and they can relate to what they did for your company. So it's, it's important for you to surround yourself with advisors and mentors that ideally, you know, are active or that have not been too far um, in their journeys as well. So that was so super helpful because I could rely on, on these, on this, like this group of mentors that I had who had just gone through this journey. So that was extremely, uh, extremely, extremely helpful. And then two, I would say is it's that intuition. Like your intuition is like the most powerful tool that you have and use it and don't discount it and listen to it. And if it doesn't feel right, it's okay. Right. It's okay. And that it will be there later and to stay heads down and Honestly, lesson number three is focus on execution, right? So don't see the shiny object. I think even when I look back at my, you know, the, that self, when I got that offer, it was like this really shiny, you know, piece of paper, but it's a distraction, right? I was distracted from the business going, you know, going down this path of, you know, this acquisition opportunity when I should have been focused on building the business I had in front of me. And so as long as you prioritize execution, always right? You are able to build a successful business. And if you're able to build a successful business, the exit will happen. The outcome will happen, right? The success will happen as long as you focus on execution, because there is no such thing as a billion dollar idea. It's only a billion dollar execution. And so execution needs to be at the top of your list every single day and, and focus, right? So if you're focused on the right things and not being distracted, and focus on your revenue, focus on building a good business, then those opportunities will continue to come and, and they truly have, right? And I'm sure that goes for every single founder that you've probably interviewed of what has defined their success is its consistency. It's showing up. It's just keep, just keep going and fighting through it. And I have to ask you around the details and the experiences from your latest funding round. Um, what details can you share? And, and how, yeah, how, how did that, what that look like? 
This last one. Okay. So I get better every time you do it. Right. So it, does, it gets, I feel like one of the things that in entrepreneurship and work for anything, right. That you learn, like it gets harder, right. The journey, like when people are like, what are the, what is like the biggest thing that you look back and you're like, you wish somebody had told you it's not easy. It's fucking hard. And it only gets harder. Like I thought it was going to get easier when like, Oh, I'm going to get my you're solo. And then you're like, when I get like my first employee, it's going to get easier. When I get my 10th employee, it's going to get easier. When I get my thousandth customer or my, you know, when I hit, you know, a million in, in ARR or the, like whatever milestone you, you feel, you're like, oh, it's going to get easier. It doesn't get easier. You just get better, right? That's what happens. You just get better through that experience. And so kind of looking back at this last funding round, you know, I think it's about relationships. So the, you know, this last funding round, I, it was our current investors that ended up coming back into for more investment. And I think that that goes not only to show of the strength in our business, but of the relationships that are so that are important and that you continue to show, um, like you don't need to have a lot of net new. And over the last, I, I know founders that all they do is focus their time on fundraising. And I've been really lucky that we've not had to, like my job is an execution of the business. And when then I'm ready to fundraise, I've already have built the relationships through that journey. Like I'm, we're, I'm always building relationships. And honestly, Nathan, I get, I get scared for what's happening post pandemic and people's ability to like, or people's like not wanting to meet in person and not wanting to foster relationships. It's really tough to do this in a virtual environment. I was lucky to have like been fundraising in the pre-pandemic environment and building these relationships with investors that we ended up doing in our series C round that I was building relationships earlier on when we were in our seed round. And so it didn't just happen that we had this like knight in shining armor investor that came out and we had just met every single investor that has been part of our board and that has been part of our journey. It was a long uh, relationship that we built. I mean, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like marriage, but you got a date before you just jump in and get married. And so I think that's something that, um, founders, you know, I think most of them are naturally good at, right. I mean, we're storytellers, we're visionaries, we're, you know, we're great with people. And I think that's a huge part of fundraising is showing, you know, you have to have a great business, right. You've got to have that. That's like foundation of it. That's clean sheets is what we call it. You got to have that, but you've got to be able to articulate your, your, that story of the business and where it's headed through the financial data and through those relationships and fostering those relationships. And so that is how we've been able to kind of keep on climbing. IPO, is that on the table, on the cards? We've heard you talk about that. Maybe, maybe not. No, let's talk about it. I'm pretty, I'm really transparent. I mean, you can, I'm, I'm a very transparent uh, CEO and I, I think absolutely IPO is an option and stacks is a four letter word for exactly for that reason. And this last round was gearing up for what's ahead and what's next. I mean, a company size now, our size, I mean, there's only a couple of, you know, options for us of what's ahead. And it's uh, definitely one of, you know, an option I'm really excited for. And I do think that this is a household name and, and our, the way that our product and technology has evolved and where the market is headed. I believe that all software companies are payments companies. They just don't know it yet. So we first came to market and it was direct to our customers, one-to-one with small businesses, then large businesses. And now we've learned that, you know, SaaS companies and software companies are white labeling our solution to support their customers. And so we believe there's a huge, huge future in integrated payments and embedded payments. And um, we currently right now own almost, you know, 25 billion of that market uh, today and growing and so I think IPO is a very exciting option. We're really excited for it. However, the markets also have turned in this last year. And so, you know, I think that as a founder, you have to be, you know, you have to be able to see what opportunities, opportunities there are for your company according to the market, according to where your customers are headed, according to how your company is growing. So we're just focused on growth right now. And so we just completed our, our fundraise earlier this year. We're heads down in execution. And so for the next three years, we're going to be building a business. And I do think alongside, we're going to be getting IPO ready because regardless of whether it is a strategic that comes to the table or we end up taking the company public, 
becoming IPO ready is such a great process to just to sophisticate, you know, to, and then, and the next level of your company to sophisticate your company and advance your company and the, um, you know, with, with the right structure that it needs at the next level regardless. And so going down this path is really, really exciting. And, uh, we're, you know, we're ready to see where, where the, where the world takes us. Awesome. And, uh, you talk about uh, Stacks, four-letter word. You guys previously were named Fat Merchant. That's a really cool name. So can you tell us about the rebrand, why that happened? Yeah, talk us through that. So when I started the company, it was Fat Merchant and it was meant, it was such a cool name. It was hilarious. It was so fun. And there's been a maturation of us, our products, our company and Fat Merchant lived its life. And I think it's so hard for founders, especially to let go of their baby, right? So I have three babies. My first baby was Fat Merchant. And then I have two daughters. And, you know, it's really, it was a big evolution of where we were in 2014 to uh, 2020 is when we rebranded the company. But as our technology evolved, our our branding, our messaging, our um, customer journey wasn't reflected in our name and our messaging because we were just merchant facing as fat merchant and fat merchant stood for fast, affordable transaction technology. But we had this amazing platform for integrated payments and for, you know, financial institutions for, for SaaS companies. And so we needed a, you know, we were the payment stack and that's where our future was. So where we started and the pivots that evolved in a company, we also had to pay attention to where we were headed, where the puck was going. And so that's something that I feel like I have no ego in, luckily, and it's changed. Like I, you know, as humans, we're so multidimensional and I embrace my own multidimensional personality. Like I'm always changing. You're always changing. Like, you know, there's things that keep us core to who we are and that doesn't change, right? Which was the values of our company. Our, our core product and offering, what we serve to our customers. But there has been an evolution in the company and it was time to reflect that evolution and where we were headed. And so in 2020, we um, decided to rip the Band-Aid and to, uh, to come to market and change our name and, and, we, you know, and be the payment stack for small business, large business and software companies, which is more reflective of who we are today and where we're headed. And so we did a extremely large rebrand. It was probably the one of the hardest decisions I've ever made as CEO and probably one of the best decisions that I've also made as CEO. Why was it the hardest? Cuz just the name, right? A name name can be anything that you make of it. That is easy to say that the name but when the name already has credibility, right? When the name already has SEO value, like, as I mentioned, we're a digital company, we acquire our customers digitally, there's share of space that we own. So to have to completely start over from scratch, right, to transition everything. And it's not necessarily starting from scratch, but there's a big migration that take place takes place, right? And people either hate it or love it. And if you think about companies, like literally at the same time, I believe uh, Facebook also went from like, we did ours, and then Facebook went from Facebook to meta. Right. I mean, and, and companies have to evolve and where that, where their future is headed. And so it was nice to also like see other large companies kind of head in that direction. It like helps me feel a little bit more validated, but it was definitely super scary and very hard to say people may, um, we have to let go of our past. So I think that is a evolution is, is scary. And so just being vulnerable, you know, here to say that change is scary, but change is also, it's risky, but it's 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 important, and it's part of who we are, and it's part of how companies need to operate as well. well thank you for sharing. Um, you also run a podcast called CEO School. Can you tell us about the inspiration behind that? Absolutely, I absolutely love it. It's one of my uh, my favorite titles outside of CEO and mom that I wear is podcast host. I get to have amazing conversation with female founders, so. Every Monday and Wednesday, I have a show. Um, it's called CEO School. You can find it on all of your podcasting channels. It's actually now the top 25. Like it's one of the top 25 ranking entrepreneur podcasts. We've grown um, insane. So during the pandemic, when I had extra time and no commute time, I, I've been sharing a lot of my story on Instagram. So you can follow me um, on Instagram. 
And it kind of all started around my journey of becoming a mother and a CEO. And I just felt really lonely in this world of just as a female founder, honestly, scaling at a company at this, like where I was trying to head to, I just didn't feel like I had enough resources. I felt everything was just a fucking boys club and everything I had to learn on my own. And I was just craving community, right? Craving women who I can, I mean, every mentor I've ever had, and I love them to death. I've had amazing men in my life. So it doesn't take away from the men that I have in my life or the men that have supported, but I just couldn't find a space for women to come, you know, come together and truly build things together and share like the boys club, like knowledge from, you know, generation to generation has passed along golf courses and country clubs. And here I am as like a Pakistani, you know, you know, 30 year old, I'm 35 now, but 30 year old mother of two and building a, a SaaS tech company. Like I couldn't find, I felt it was lonely and it, it, it continued to get lonely, lonelier. And so I was sharing my journey online when, when uh, Instagram stories had come out and, uh, you know, dropping my kid to school and then going, you know, to go pitch for fundraising. And I was doing pitch comments. I was doing all the things and just sharing my life on social media and the community started growing and I create, and I would show up on Instagram live on Wednesday nights and it was called wind down Wednesday, similar to this. And I pop up when, you know, Instagram live had come out and then women would come and just like ask questions about their business. And then when the pandemic happened and like the world, we didn't know what was happening. Um, you know, I probably spent every day for like three weeks, every night, just answering DMs, you know, talking to women in business and sharing things that we were doing at Socks and what we were doing from work from home, what tools we were using. And I'm like, this has got to, I didn't go to CEO school. So I don't, I felt like I was teaching CEOs, but I didn't go to CEO school. And so that's how the podcast was formed at CEO school. And uh, Mondays we interview, it's how I built this uh, for women. And we interview women, you know, it was also based around the statistic. I read a statistic in Forbes that less than 2% of female founders ever break a million in revenue. And at that time we were probably like 20 plus million in revenue. And I was appalled that that, I mean, the statistics are, I mean, there is, there's so much, we talk about parody it, you know, that there's, there's a huge feminist movement. We have, you know, it's not girl boss. It's just boss. Like there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of dialogue that's taking place. But when you look at the statistics and even in 2022, less than 3% of venture capital last year still went to women, like only went to women, 3%. So the gap is so large. And by the time that, I mean, I mean, my daughter's daughters are not going to reach parity when it comes to pay parity and just, you know, we're not asking, I'm not, you know, feminism isn't women greater than men. It's about just, we just want equality. Like we just want the same opportunity. That's all I want is the same opportunity. And, and I felt like I've had to fight for every opportunity. I've never had a seat at the table. So I had to build my own. And that's honestly where uh, my passion for women in business really comes from. And it's just whatever I can share from my own experience, my own learnings, and then also learning from other women. It's that mentors, the mentors that I was speaking of. So I interview them on Mondays and on Wednesdays, we still do wind down Wednesdays and um, you know, that's, that's the show. And it's, it's just an amazing community of women. Now we have over 300,000 women in the community and uh, it's, it's just the way that I can, you know, make an impact and, and hopefully actually make a dent in that statistic. So that's the goal. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing. It sounds like you're building something pretty special there too. Well, look, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up. Uh, I could speak to you all day. I'm having a ton of fun, but I'm also, also no, it's getting late for you. So we're going to move to the hot seat. Uh, the first question that I have for you is if you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? If I were to go back to my first day, I would say is just to keep going, like honestly focus on execution. Like ideas don't make you an, you know, an entrepreneur execution does. And just to focus on, stay focused and focus on your needle movers and just keep inching towards it. There's going to be a lot of distractions that come, Sanera, and just focus, focus, focus. When is work fulfilling? Every day. Every day. I, I truly feel really blessed to say when work is fulfilling is when you don't, it doesn't feel like work. It sounds, you know, it is, it's the, it, it is the old analogy of like when uh, you're having fun, you don't, you know, 
you know, it doesn't feel like work and work is hard. I mean, work is always, there's parts of work that are never going to be perfectly fun. Right. So you can't delegate out. It's not everything. Like there's still hard stuff that needs to get done for work, but when you have passion and purpose and you get to make an impact and I get to do that with my, my team every day and with our customers every day. And now building what I'm building and showing other women how to do it. it it's a blessing. What's something you've learned today? Something I've learned today is that podcasting is fun. I mean, this is, this is like, I love your job. I like, I, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's really fun just to meet people and have amazing conversations. And I've told my story so many times, but every time that somebody asks me, there's always like a fun angle to it. And so it was a, a really fun reminder of going back to the, that, that moment in time when I relied on my gut and it was a good reminder to continue to rely on my gut. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh my God. That one, that one's easy. I would say it's Sarah Blakely. I love Sarah Blakely. I actually ended up, uh, I met her a couple of years ago after we were both speaking at a conference but I had met her and uh, I mean, she's also, she has a unicorn as well, but I just love how she's made Spanx a household name and what she's done for women's empowerment and just how she so- shows up so unapologetically on social is amazing. And it honestly has inspired me to show up in the way that I show up unapologetically on social and to not, you know, to, to be who I am fully. And so I'd love to have dinner with her one day and uh, to tell her how much of an impact that's made on me. Well, look, Sanira, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, the last question is, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and your work? Absolutely. You can just find me on any social platform at Sanira Madani. That's S-U-N-E-E-R-A Madani, M-A-D-H-A-N-I. And then from there, you'll be able to find stats and everything else, the podcast, every everything will link. I'm always in my DMs on Instagram, so feel free. If you've heard me today, um, on the show. I love, love, love connecting and knowing where people are, are finding, you know, uh, you know, little bits of, uh, or any questions that you have, or however I can be of assistance. I'm here and I love, love, love talking to entrepreneurs. So feel free to DM me and I will DM back. Awesome. Well, look, uh, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. It was great to connect. Uh, thank you for staying up late. And, uh, if you're ever in Melbourne, uh, feel free to reach out. Would, uh, love to connect further. I'm going to take you up on that on my next Australian adventure. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.